Hello and welcome to B-School Radio episode 4. This is also episode 55 of the Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm podcast. My name is Lee and I am so glad that you have joined us today. Before I get started with B-School today, I want to send a shout out of appreciation to new friends of Five Apple Farm over at Patreon. Susan Spruill, who's actually an old friend, one of the oldest friends of Five Apple Farm. She is the president of our bee club, and it is such an honor to have you join us, Susan. Thank you. It means so much. And also, this is a fun one. Happy early Valentine's Day to Kathy Tumblin. Your spouse gifted you with the Patreon membership of a friend of Five Apple Farm as an early Valentine's present. So welcome to both of you. And on that topic, over at Patreon, I have posted a new blog post talking about record keeping and ideas for that, and also a little bonus podcast about the drama of the little baby beehives in the shed. I talked a lot about colony weight loss at this time of year and how to keep an eye on that. Everyone who has bees out there going through winter, please start keeping a very close eye on how heavy they are. This is the time of year, at least here in Western North Carolina, where things start to get touchy. And probably everywhere in the mid-Atlantic area, middle Tennessee, I don't know, you guys might be a little bit warmer and ahead of us. But when the bees begin to raise brood, even though it's still cold outside, they begin to raise brood, they start hitting those stores hard. They go through them much faster, exponentially faster than they have all winter. I really got an eyeful of this with the observation hive that I'm watching inside. (laughs) I have bees inside everywhere. But anyway, I'm watching the observation hive. And back in the fall, I watched them raise a couple frames of brood just kind of all at once. That was their last hurrah for the brood raising until this most recent uh, brood raising, which they've already started. Anyway, it was unbelievable watching them go through the honey that was in that little bitty observation hive. They ran out pretty much um, almost immediately. And so they are being fed, of course, you know, there's only four frames in a little observation hive. So that was an eye opener in how fast they go through. But it is exponential because they are feeding all those baby bees who, I don't know, like teenagers must eat more than adults <laughs> because they go through the food fast. So the takeaway here for folks with bees outside is keep checking the weight by whatever means that you do that. I tilt my hives, but then I've gotten used to what a hive tilt feels like least of a full-size hive and have a good sense of confidence in that. But if you have warm flying days that the bees are flying, they're on a good sunny warm day, then by all means go in there, check and see how much honey they have left. And at least here in the mountains, I still have to use the winter feeding methods now because as you all know, bees can't take syrup. If the syrup or the temperature is like below about 50 degrees, and what happens if you put syrup on when it's still cold is it gets cold in the night, and then because it's syrup, it's heavier than just plain water, and also often it's inside the hive. It doesn't warm up in time for them to take it the next day, so you have to wait till the weather warms up wherever you are to feed syrup, so you're going to have to use, if your bees don't have enough honey, it is an emergency um, because they they starve all at once and they starve fast and if they run out. So please check the stores on your overwintered hives and you will be glad that you did. So today I want to start talking in B-School Radio about something that to me is one of the most core and important understandings of beekeeping, but what, at least in my experience, I see covered the least. Now this is connected, but a little different, 
to a note that someone sent me. I'm going to use this as a lead in and, and, and it's going to, then I'm going to wrap back around. You know how this works. So this was a note from Rachel Hester to the podcast. Hi Lee, in your podcast, you ask for ideas for your beekeeping, beekeeping school series, which I'm so excited about, by the way. I will say with our first hive, we caught a swarm. Everyone told us about American and European fowl brood, about mites and diseases, etc., etc. But no one told us to look out for simple things like robbing, dehydration, or summer dearth feeding. Consequently, our hive got robbed out during a dearth, and that was partly my fault because I spilled sugar syrup everywhere every time I fed them. Clearly, I'm emotionally over and well-adjusted and reconciled to this experience. Not! Exclamation point. But I did want to say, I just feel like beekeeping books and classes get so focused on the big, huge guns like Varroa that they forget to mention common everyday things like robbing, like watching the entrance of the hive to see if the bees are bringing in pollen as a first clue that the hive is queen right. Anyway, I hope that was helpful. I love your podcast. I'm so glad you found it. Rachel, I'm really glad you found the podcast too because you pointed out something that actually initially in B-School was one of the reasons that I started recording uh, B-School episodes as a supplement to your in-person B-School because I think what the B-Schools do well is to drill you in these core details like the brood, you know, the the members of the hive, the different casts of the workers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And like you said, the big guns. And it's interesting that you you called it the big guns. So there are these big topics like the mites and the diseases and the parts of the hive and the names of the bees and the blah blah blah. It's hard to put all that together from the pieces that you get at B school. Like what you were talking about, robbing. I'm gonna use this actually, believe it or not, as the connection into my topic. Robbing is a function of what is going on with the bees' food sources out in the world. So when there's no flowers, no nectar for them to bring in, they get, especially when it's hot and dry, they get kind of desperate. They get cranky. They start looking around for anything to eat. They are hungry and they are worried. And I know that last part, the worried. (laughs) Technically speaking, bees probably don't worry. But what they do looks exactly like a person when they're worried. They are pestery, they are cranky, and this is the time that the bees start coming to my open windows at the house. Like if you are mixing up a batch of sweet tea and you've got sugar out, the bees will come to the window and just hover around and go, hey, you want to share any of that? And so what Rachel's talking about is with robbing, when you're feeding bees in a dearth, a dearth is when there's no flowers, no nectar outside for them to bring back to their hive, which there is, is their purpose in life when they are out there foraging, is to find nectar and bring back to the hive. And when they do that, they're happy. That's the time you inspect the hive during a beautiful sunny flying day when there's a flow on. And those bees, they are not even paying attention to you. That is the beautiful part about a flow. When that flow shuts off, when you have drought in your area or when the season's just over and that that flow in some places cuts off all at once, all of a sudden, like literally from one day to the next, your colonies shift gears and they go into jerk mode. (laughs) You know, really they're just desperate, but they can be jerks at that time. And one of the ways they express their jerkness is to go and try to rob other hives. The bigger the hive, they'll look for a little hive that they can essentially knock off and steal their stuff. And some types of bees, the Italians in particular, are bad about this. I, I read once that the Carniolans, which actually originate from Italians, are also bad. I didn't have much trouble with robbing until I brought some Italians into my yard 
Now, I'm part Italian, so this is no insult to Italians. But uh, anyway, there, some bees are worse about it than others. That's the takeaway. And also, some bees are more, some hives are more vulnerable than others. A big, giant bubba hive, it's going to take a bigger bubba hive to knock that one off. And usually, they won't mess with each other. But this is where it gets tricky. If you have little baby hives and big bubba hives in the same yard, you run into trouble if there's a dearth. My point, and I do have one, is that the what is going on in your bee yard, what you will see inside the hive, it's not occurring in a vacuum. It is a direct result of what is going on out there in the big world. And that connection, if you always remember that everything you see in your hive is a reflection of what is going on out in the natural world in terms of food sources, water sources, the wind, the sun, the weather, the length of the day, all those things are having an impact on what your bees are doing inside their hive. Similarly, what the colony, remember in an earlier bee school I talked about that the colony, that is the creature. So it's not the individual bees, it's, it's the colony. They work together. Each of them have roles and they are absolutely, absolutely committed to their roles. And they don't think about any role except that role that they have at that time. And just to throw in a, a little uh, longer, they um, also change roles throughout their life cycle. But don't think about that right this minute. So what I want to talk to you about today is if you constantly keep in mind what the colony what the animal, the superorganism, the whole hive is trying to accomplish at any given time, it will make your beekeeping so much easier and make so much sense. For example, the life cycle of the colony. I just did a Google search. I was trying to kind of uh, get my mind going around this topic and I put in life cycle of the colony and over and over and over every page, they are like, Okay, the bees are an egg. They're a start as an egg for this many days. Then they're an open larva for this many days. Then they're a capped brood for this many days. There is a queen. There is our workers. There are drones. Those are the pieces and the parts. But my question, which I put in there, the life cycle of the colony is almost unanswered in almost all the resources that I found, at least all the first page results on Google. The one paragraph in all those retrievals, this was the one paragraph that addressed this thing I'm trying to talk to you about today. And I don't even remember where it was, but this was the paragraph. Life in the colony is entirely dependent upon the time of year. Honeybee colonies can get all their resources from flowers. As a result, the life cycle of the colony follows the life cycle of flowering plants in the environment. I'll pause here and say not in the environment, but in your microclimate and your little bowl of bees. <laughs> That's the uh, the distance that your, your bees go out. Okay, back to the paragraph. Every spring, honeybees start to build up their workforce in preparation for the bloom of spring flowers. In the summer, honeybees ramp up resource collection and are at their largest and most active. In the fall, Bees start to slow down collection as the temperatures get cooler, flowers start to become less abundant. Honeybees survive the winter without flowers by eating the honey they made in the spring, summer, and fall. A large honeybee colony is an impressive sight. European honeybees, Apis mellifera, common to Europe and North America, can have colonies containing over 60,000 individuals. End of paragraph. Okay, so... This is the one paragraph in all that material that touched on what I believe is the the underlying foundation of your beekeeping. If you want to be successful and if you want for what you're seeing in your hives to make sense, you have to think about what is that colony doing? 
where are they in their life cycle? The same way that if you have a little toddler and they're down on the floor crawling around and playing, that's normal. If my spouse walked in and I was down on the floor crawling around and playing with small toys and Merkel wasn't in the room, <laughs> Merkel the dog's in, then that would be reason for concern. <laughs> so we do these things that are life, uh, stage of life appropriate. And your colony is always, go- they are going to stay on their own track of their life cycle. So for example, I started off the podcast talking about you got to watch the stores in your colony now in late winter because they are starting to use them up fast. Why? There's not, it's not that there are more bees in the hive. In fact, the adult bees have been steadily dying off all winter, hopefully not too much. Uh, But those remaining old bees at the end of winter and they're really, really unusually old for a bee. And they're they're built special to last the whole winter and still have the strength to raise up the first crop of baby bees, that first round of brood. And if they do that successfully, those are the bees that will very shortly replace them. So you have this kind of crossing over, um, changing horses, if you will, and there's a, there's a danger zone in there. So you want to make sure that your bees have plenty of food. So that's the technicality of what the beekeeper should be doing. But what I want you to also think about, you're going to have to hold multiple plates on multiple sticks in your mind to do beekeeping. So that's what you need to do is watch the food. But what the bees are doing is ever since the light started getting longer at winter solstice, the bees are beginning an approach pattern to the most explosive growth of their entire life cycle, and that is spring. When those early, when that early nectar flow comes on, now what that nectar flow is is going to depend on where you are and what flowers and trees bloom first in your area. For us here in probably most of North Carolina in this region, red maple, that's your first big flow. And it's really not, you don't, we don't hardly ever see maple honey, though technically speaking, they, they could make honey off of maple. Usually they are using it so fast that they're, they're building baby bees on maple nectar they're, and pollen, mostly pollen. Now, maple's tricky because the time that red maples are blooming which mine are just, mine are starting to try. I mean, if it wasn't for the snow on the ground and the sudden, <laughs> the sudden little snap back to winter that we're having, then the bees would be out there probably working some of the maple that are at least in the lower elevations in my fly zone. Right this minute, nobody's flying because there's snow on the ground and it is cold. But so maple is very hit or miss. And this is another danger zone for the bees because there can be a ton of pollen out there waiting to happen, maple nectar waiting to feed baby bees. But if the bees can't fly to it, then never mind, they don't get it. So anyway, wherever you are, there will be that first major nectar flow. This is usually not a honey flow because the bees are going to build more bees on that. So the life cycle of the colony is they are desperately trying to build the young workers that will be your bees for spring and early summer. At that same time, if they're successful, okay, so let's say a hive is successful. The flying weather turns out right. They're able to get out there, get nectar, build a whole new squadron of baby bees. Then the next part of their life cycle, the bees instinctively know, okay, we've built up to this good, robust size. And we are we have enough workers to bring in a ton of nectar to make honey on the big whatever your first big honey flow is. Here in the mountains of North Carolina, it is often black locust and tulip poplar. Those are the two things that, that come in 
And interestingly, you'll, this is a side note. So black locust sounds, you know, black locust, that sounds so dark. Well, it makes the lightest, nearly white honey that you've ever seen. And tulip poplar, which are those beautiful, light, lime green flowers up at the top of the trees. You don't see them very often until they start to fall off. It makes this dark, wonderful, rich, pungent honey. So it's completely opposite to kind of how the flowers, well, the name of the tree and how the flowers look. But anyway, that's the first big honey flow. So on the first big nectar flow, they build bees. On the first of the honey flow, they want to build another colony, meaning they want to reproduce. They're like, we're about to be at our biggest, fattest, most well-fed. There's still plenty of early summer left, and that's when they know that's their best chance to swarm. And when they swarm, they're reproducing. That is how bee colonies reproduce. So remember that you've got these multiple layers of reproduction going on. You have a queen laying eggs that becomes brood that becomes bees. But then on the bigger level of the animal, to have another animal, meaning another colony or a few other colonies, they have to split. We split them. They swarm. It's the same. It can be the same thing if you do it right, if you do it like they do. So knowing the underlying life cycle of the colony is going to make things make sense. So it, it makes sense then that food is at its thinnest at the end of the winter and the beginning of the spring. There's a reason why that's called the hunger moon out there in February. It was not just people that experienced that. And so that underlying life cycle will guide you in what your bees, both what they're doing and most importantly, what they're about to do. I think you heard Brian Fisher in the interview with him talk about, this is so important, I just went and rummaged around to find the notebook that I have this actual quote in. So Brian Fisher said, quote, you can't keep bees by the calendar. You have to keep bees by when the bees are ready for what they need, end quote. He defined success in beekeeping as anticipation and action. And I think you will remember in the interview with Tina Sebastian, she talked about that in that wonderful interview, which I enjoyed so very much. She talked about how her New Year's resolution was to do things when they needed to be done, not two weeks later, which once you're a few years into beekeeping, this is going to be hilarious to you because that is such a challenge. The message here is what the bees are doing, if you keep that in mind, then what you need to be doing which is thinking a few weeks ahead of what you need to be preparing for, will make sense. Otherwise, it seems kind of baffling. There's a new section of, I, th I think it's in American Bee Journal, and I think it's called something about, it's in the Honey Report section about what we're doing this month or what beekeepers in each region are doing this month or the next month. And that's very handy. I think that's a good thing for a beginner to study what beekeepers are doing. And you will see all kinds of beekeeper tasks like adding supers or pulling honey or feeding or equalizing brood, all those, those things that beekeepers are doing. But if you will ask yourself first, always, what are the bees doing and what are they about to do? What are they, what are they aiming for? Because the bees, they are always grounded in their natural cycle, in that cycle of the year. Now, they might get slowed down or sped up or supercharged depending on weather events and flower events. Like if you have just this absolutely super booming honey flow, they are going to boom like you've never seen. If you have kind of a little sputtery honey flow and then you have a cold snap and then it's rainy, they're still going to be trying to do what bees do, but they may be slowed down or stopped 
depending on, on what it is. But their aim is always the same, which is to complete the colony's life cycle. Now, what is that? That is to get ready for winter. That's that year's life cycle is to get ready for winter and to make more colonies. Yes, they're making more bees at the right times of the year to do that, but that underlying to make another colony, to make their own split, their own swarm. Those are always big, what would you call that? Like, you know, kind of cardinal directions in their life cycle are going to be those events. For the beekeeper, the you know our our um, signposts along the road tend to be much more about what we're doing. You know, do we have enough supers? Are we ready for winter? Do they need to be fed? Do they need to be split? Do they need to be do they need to be given more space? We're always doing this, but the bees have their prime directive in their mind all the time. And if you ask yourself, where are they in their life cycle of the year of the season, then things are going to make more sense. For example, this is something I think hard for new beekeepers to understand. Let me pause here for a second and just point out again that if you're starting fresh from scratch with bees, that first year is not going to look much like the natural bee cycle. And you know, maybe that's a thing that really messes beekeepers up because if they get through that first year, then they think the second year is going to look like that. It looks nothing like that. <laughs> I mean, there it is so radically different. It could be a different hobby altogether. So just remember the first year, the only thing about the first year is getting through it, learning all you can and getting through it because beekeeping really starts that second year. The summer solstice and the winter solstice will never mean as much to you, I don't think, before you become a beekeeper as they do after you become a beekeeper. Before I was a beekeeper, winter solstice was the dark time of the year. To me, it was kind of uh, hard. It was a hard time of the year. I don't do well in winter. <laughs> much like a bee, I'm, I'm just getting through winter. And so winter solstice was just a bummer. It was like in the places that I had always lived, you were about to go into the hardest months, January and February. After I have had bees, I love winter solstice because I know that even though I can't see it, inside that dark hive out in the cold night, the bees have shifted gears. And even if they're not starting yet, they are starting the approach pattern to spring in that they're going to start to attempt to raise brood. Similarly, but opposite, <laughs> is summer solstice. So in the summer solstice, when it is bright and sunny and there's just lots of heat and tons of bees in your hive, if everything's going well, there's just tons of bees, a lot of times beginners will be like, oh, I've got so many bees, you know, I need to make more splits. And you definitely can. But the bees, once you hit summer solstice, the bees are switching gears and they are beginning the approach pattern to winter preparation. And it is so hard, you know, it's just in late June, you're out there, it's hot. It's just hard to imagine that they're shifting gears. But as soon as that light begins to shorten after summer solstice, the bees go into a different pattern. They're, they are less interested in swarming, not completely. They will do things like uh, swarm if they're too crowded sometimes, but they're less successful sometimes. Well, anyway, I won't get into that. The bees have shifted gears. And if you try to do what the beekeeper wants to do, which is like, I've got so many bees, I'm just going to make a bunch of splits. You may be successful if you do it right. You, If you're going to be successful, you have to keep into consideration they've shifted gears. Also, there's probably not as much nectar coming in. Now, this depends on where you are. And once the nectar slows down, they are not as interested 
in raising their own queens in making splits. So if you are going to do that, you have to supplement them in a way that kind of um, mimics what would be going on at the time they're wanting to make a split, which is nectar. So you're going to have to feed them, ideally with uh, thin syrup, to mimic a nectar flow to keep them in the mood to make new queens. Now we folks who breed, raise queens, we do this all the time. You have to feed them a little to keep them going, keep them kind of feeling like it's still coming in and they'll go ahead and raise queens for you. It's actually a great time to raise queens if once you learn to do it, beginners, this is not for you, but in a few years in, the post-solstice queens are very, very special. And I'll tell you later about why that is. So on this life cycle of the colony, if you will keep that in your mind, Whenever your B book or your B school or your B mentor says you need to be doing ABC, you probably do. But I want you to step back and understand deeply, I'm going to be doing ABC because the B's are doing what? And the B's are preparing for what? Where are we in this colony's seasonal life cycle? And if you do that, I think I don't even know if this makes sense before you've done it for a while. And folks who are just starting in a few years, please contact me and tell me if this made any sense at this point. I mean, it might be one of those things, just like the things you tell a teenager <laughs> from the wisdom of 50 years or so, and they don't get it. They can't get it. They can't understand because they haven't had the life experience to make it make any sense. Similarly, I wonder if if you just have to keep bees a while till these these bigger cycles begin to come into focus for you so that when you're out there you are looking at several different invisible layers at the same time you're looking at the bees there in front of your eyes but the the invisible layer is what is that where are they in the trajectory of their that animal's year and then where are you in the trajectory of what do you want them to do next and is that what they want to do next if you and your bees are in alignment in what you want to do next, things go really smooth. On the other hand, if the bees want to go this direction and you're trying to go this other direction, it is going to be a constant fight and you're not going to win (laughs) from the point of view that they're either not going to do what you want or if you force them hard enough, you will cause that whole hive to stumble and they may or may not recover. So you definitely want to follow them in the direction they want to go, but knowing kind of like driving a boat, you can kind of nudge it one direction and it will it will cause a change in the whole direction um, that it's going. Let me back up. No, not the whole direction. They will always be going the direction they want to go, but you can tweak things. Just like I said earlier, you know, that if you, if you keep feeding, then you can stretch out the queen rearing season a little longer. Or if you want to make a late split, say for a brood break to help with mite control, and you're doing it in a season that's really for the bees a little later for that. But there's still drones out there, so you know you can make a split. You know a new queen can get mated, but maybe there's a dearth or something. Then you're going to have to very carefully manage to feed that hive to keep them in the mood to split and raise a queen, but also feed them in a way that they don't get robbed. So that's how, see, I told you, I told you that letter that Rachel wrote me, it was actually, I was going to start there and then I was going to somehow wrap all the way back around to there. That the things that she talks about as being a struggle that she didn't particularly learn from B-School, like the danger of how robbing becomes this huge danger in a dearth. Robbing is one of those things that until you see it in action, you 
you just can't understand how devastating it is because it robbing is something read all about it in your literature in your b school ask questions about it ask what are the signs like the, the you'll have wrestling bees out there so sometimes it's very hard to tell you have a big busy hive a lot of coming and going a lot of commotion on the front porch what is that you know is it a party is it a riot <laughs> and that's what you're trying to figure out is it a party or is it a riot and the Robbing will have certain signs like wrestling bees, bees tangling with each other and falling off the entrance board because they are fighting. Bees fighting with each other on the entrance board. That is an important signal because that is robbing. It requires emergency action on the part of the beekeeper in order to probably to save that hive. So those are the kind of things definitely learn. You can prevent a lot of robbing with some techniques like reducing entrances, like Rachel mentioned never spilling syrup. If you are feeding in a dearth, you do not want a drop outside of where you intend to put it. Using feeding methods that do not incite robbing. Like never ever use those dang entrance feeders really anytime. <laughs> but definitely not in robbing season because it's too close to the door. It's just like you're not going to put your most valuable possessions on a table with an arm's length right inside your front door and leave the door unlocked or you're not going to you know leave your most valuable thing on the seat of your car in a bad neighborhood with the door unlocked you know hello <laughs> so that's the same thing of putting sugar syrup just beside the front door of, of a hive is is nuts in my opinion you want to use one of the feeding methods that puts the feed well inside the hive so that a robber is going to have to pass through that entire hive to get to the feed now if that is a weak hive they most certainly will they will bust down the door bust through the guards and get to that feed and cause a, a big massacre that you don't want to have so we'll get into that later just remember those are the robbing is a concept that ought to, in B school sometimes it'll be just mentioned, but that's a big one because it's it's a way you can lose your hive in one day and you and you don't want it to happen. Also, Rachel, on a on a funner note, she mentioned tips like watching the entrance of the hive to see if the bees are bringing in pollen as a first clue that the hive is queen right, and that is so true. There's a couple times that is so exciting. One is when you come out of the winter and you're watching the bees come and go, and it's early spring and you see those bees rushing in with big saddlebags of pollen. That is thrilling because that means your queen has made it through the winter. They are raising baby bees. Now, then the caution is you want to make sure that they maintain enough, that the weather allows them to maintain enough food. The other time seeing them bring in pollen is so thrilling is if you have done a split um, or a raising queens and the part that doesn't have a queen that you're waiting on a new queen to hopefully come back and start laying eggs. When you see the workers start to bring in pollen, it's not foolproof, but almost all they think they are about to have a laying queen. And that's exciting because usually they're right. There is the thing, and, and I think Rachel alluded to this in her comment, that it's the first sign. It's not a for sure sign, but it's the first sign. If they're bringing in pollen, they have brood, open brood, or they think they're about to have open brood. They also sometimes can get it wrong. <laughs> so you cannot rely just on pollen going in and saying, oh yeah, I have a queen, everything is fine. You really do at the regular times have to get in there and look and make sure. Well, okay, I'm going to wrap this up. I, I'm going to come back to this because I just talked today off the top of my head of this idea I have about how that colony life cycle is, is the roadmap 
to everything the beekeeper needs to be doing and needs to be preparing to do. As a beekeeper, you always have to be thinking a few steps ahead because if you go out there and they're swarming, you have waited too late on your swarm prevention techniques. <laughs> so I'll wrap this up. Beginners, if any of this made sense, would you let me know? If it didn't make any sense, would you let me know? If there were parts that kind of made sense, but you need to know more, please let me know because you're probably not the only one with that question. And regular listeners, especially the ones who are friends of Five Apple over at Patreon, please go check it out. You have a bonus podcast over there. You have a new blog post and you're about to have an early release episode of a podcast that will be released here to everybody in a few weeks. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Here's to spring wherever she is. I hope she gets here a little quicker.